Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing podcast. I am uh, recording live in Minnesota today where it's a high of 10. That's right, 10 degrees high and uh, the low is one. So I thought what better way to to put me in a warmer state of mind than to go down to Arizona. And uh, like everybody else on Instagram this time of year is down in Arizona chasing Mern's quail. So we are going to focus this episode in Arizona with Mern's quail, with our special guest, Kirby Bristow, the wildlife biologist uh, specializing at Merns with the uh, Arizona Game and Fish Department. Kirby, thanks so so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. It's so, uh, six, 65 here in Arizona, by the way. <laughs> so mission accomplished. It's, it's gorgeous in Arizona and it's freezing cold in Minnesota today. Um, so I, I I introduced you as a wildlife biologist with a specialist with specialization in merns. Is that accurate? Is that uh, um, um, title? Yeah, that that is accurate uh, to some degree. I uh, I am a, a quail enthusiast and have been for for all my life, really. But uh, I have uh, I've worked for the Arizona Game Fish Department for uh, nearly thirty years now, and uh, um, most of that time I worked for the research branch and uh, during some of that time I did quail research and and uh, some of that quail research was on Mern's quail and uh, and yeah I've been a a student of Mern's quail ever since ever since that first research project back in 2000 or late 90s okay and you grew up in Arizona as well yeah yeah I grew up in Tucson my my father uh, was uh, worked for the Arizona game and fish department and I actually was born at a game and fish, uh, uh, Arizona game and fish department owned property. Or, I mean, ah. I wasn't born on site. I was born in the hospital. But anyways, so <laughs> I've, I've, I've been I've been with the uh, with the department my entire life, really. But uh, wow. Yeah, I, I grew up in Tucson. And uh, like I was saying earlier in uh, in the late 70s, 1978, 79, um, I trained my first bird dog and and uh, shot my first quail over point and have been have been hooked ever since and that was wow. a particularly good year for for uh, gamble quail that year because of uh, uh, favorable precipitation over the past you know probably decade leading mm-hmm. up to that point as well as there was uh, uh, new regulations that lengthened the season so so uh, it was a really uh, a banner year for for gamble quail harvest and I don't think we've We've met that that level since then, but anyways, it got me hooked on uh, quail hunting, and I've I've been a an ardent quail hunter ever since. You mentioned um, that your dad worked for the Arizona um, Game and Fish Department. What what did your dad do at the time when when I was in Tucson? When I was you know learning to hunt quail, he was he was the regional supervisor here in Tucson, and then uh, he eventually went on to be, become the director and okay. uh, then retired retired in the late 80s and moved to virginia and was the director there for a little while okay but uh, um 
yeah, I, I had gone, I went to school at, uh, at Northern Arizona University to get my bachelor's degree in wildlife science. And then, uh, and then I got a master's degree at uh, the U of A then and graduated in, in uh, 93 from the U of A and have worked for uh, Arizona Game and Fish Department ever since. And you mentioned that that first year you started bird hunting happened to be a banner year, particularly for gambles. Um, you, you mentioned that your first bird dog. What what breed of dog did you have as a, your first dog? A German Shorthair. Okay. And I have been uh, uh, falling in love with that breed. And and I've had other breeds, but mostly I've had German Shorthairs throughout my life. Okay. What and, What is the... Um, if you were to just guess uh, bird dog breeds in Arizona, what are what are the more popular breeds that folks bird hunters own down there? I think English pointers and and uh, German shorthairs are probably the two most common. Brittany's might be fairly close, and then uh, followed maybe by English setters. Okay, so the the pointing breeds dominate in Arizona. Yeah, and especially in the circles that I run, I don't. Well, uh, Arizona is not a good state for waterfowl, mm -hmm. <laughs> despite what what John O'Dell might tell you. But but anyway, <laughs> so you don't see a lot of people with with labs. You see a lot of people that have labs as pets, but but there, I don't think there's as many serious waterfowl hunters with labs. So so yeah, the pointing breeds are are probably the most popular gun dogs in Arizona. Okay, so and you and you work and live in the Tucson area, which is kind of the that's the biggest town within Mearns country, isn't it? Right. Yeah. The Mearns quail distribution is kind of, you, you might think of Tucson as the northwestern corner of it. it their, their distribution uh, mostly goes down into Mexico. Most of their distribution is in Mexico. And mm -hmm. then uh, um, the southeast corner of Arizona, the southwest corner of, of New Mexico is the, is the part of their distribution in the United States. And then there's some some relic populations over in Texas that are sort of uh, separated from other the the rest of the uh, distribution in West Texas, um, and uh, they're really uh, adapted to the the uh, evergreen oak oak evergreen woodlands or savannas that we have down here. And in, in the as soon as you get up above about four thousand five thousand feet elevation. Um, there's a lot of mountain ranges uh, in southeast Arizona with the, this oak oak savanna habitat type that that that's that's where the uh, the best Mearns quail hunting is. They can exist in other other habitats, but that's that's where the the best hunting is. And you mentioned Texas, New Mexico, Arizona have Mearns quail, but you can only hunt them in Arizona and New Mexico, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I experienced my first ever hunt, uh, flew into Tucson a year ago about this time and, and went down and hunted. Um, oh, I was, I was east of Sonoida. Um, and I was actually hunting gambles north of Tucson too. Um, mm -hmm. but I, I chased gambles, scalies and merns. Um, so it, it was just, it was an eye-opening experience in so many ways, and, but you talked about the oak savannas. Um, the, the oak is not the same oak species that a kid from Michigan living in Minnesota 
is used to. Right. You know, the, the oak species, I think that the gentleman I was with called them living, is it living oak where they Live never oak. drop their leaves? Live oaks. Yeah. Live, Live oak. oak is a general term for the several species that, uh, that don't drop their leaves. And, uh, um, we have a lot of them, uh, the, probably the main species are emery oaks and then there's a Mexican blue oak and then there's a Arizona white oak. But, uh, uh, the most common down here, at least in in Mern's quail habitat, is the emery oak. Okay. And uh, and they don't drop their leaves. They they have and they're they're generally uh, not as large as what you think of as your red oaks and your and your white oaks from back east. But uh, otherwise, they're big oak trees. There's other live live oak species that grow in a shrub form, but uh, the ones in Mern's quail country are are trees are and and that tree density it's not it's not a forest but it's more like a savanna like i said where it's dotted hillsides with uh, with these oaks yeah it's interesting because so I, again I, i'd been to arizona before but you know I, i'd been to phoenix i'd been north to, to pine top and i knew about it you know from for most folks arizona is much more complex from a from a topography than uh, at least at least what I expected as a kid growing up in the Midwest. You know, I when I thought of Arizona, I thought desert. When I went down there and you know to Phoenix, it matched up what I expected. And then I drove north to you know Pine Top and then to Flagstaff. I mean, it's just so incredibly diverse. And about two years ago, we did a podcast with Jonathan O'Dell. And he talked about Sky Islands being where where Merns lived south of Tucson. And I had this vision in my mind of like like Devil's Tower, like Wyoming, right? Where it's where it's these mesas or plateaus rising up off of the, the desert, and that you would hunt Merns kind of at the tops of these mesas. And when I got down there and started hunting, it's nothing like that. I mean, it, Sky Island, I can see the descriptor now that I've actually been there. But it's sort of a, it gave me an odd impression of what I was getting into. And when you talk about oak savannas, when that that's a much more better description because when I, when I walked through literally you know a um, hundred yards from the mexican border where we were hunting mm -hmm. and walking through oak savannah with tall grass with mountains around me or mountain top it felt like montana to me H have you ever hunted montana kirby um i have uh and i've heard people other people describe that that same area that you're talking about is think saying uh, if you had blindfolded me and and took the blindfold off here, I'd think that I was in Montana because it's yeah. it is a kind of a rolling hills grassland covered with these these oak trees and uh, and that's that's the best habitat to hunt Mern's quail in. They they exist over a wider range of habitats, but uh, most of the hunting is uh, is happening in these Sky Island regions of southeast Arizona. And explain the sky island region a little bit more so because it that's important distinction 
from, you know, just in many cases, uh, a 40 mile drive will put you in Gamble's country and Scaly country. Yeah. But it it is dramatically different from what you're hunting for merns. Yeah. Yeah. Because of the 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 uh, varying topography that you were talking about, um, we have a, a great diversity of, of vegetation types. And these sky islands is just a region in southeast Arizona and and western New Mexico. They refer to it as the sky island region because these these mountain ranges that that jut up out of the out of the sea of desert, if you will, um, they because of the elevation, they have such a, a, a variety of habitats that there's unique species or new unique populations living on these islands, uh, these mountains in the sea of desert. And, uh, and they don't, they don't shoot straight up like devil's tower, but, but, uh, but they are, there is a great change in, in a great diversity in habitat types as you, as you change elevation and, uh, and the Merns quail will be, um, all the, they'll be nearly at the tops of those, of those peaks, some of which get up to 12,000 feet elevation, but, but the best hunting is generally in the rolling hills. At, at elevations between five and six thousand feet yeah, okay. you get up in really steep stuff and it's difficult to to, to maneuver and um and then you also get into the more forested uh vegetation types like ponderosa pine where bird densities are not as quite quite as high and and actually being able to to shoot birds and in, in the thick forest is, is much more difficult so the the best hunting is in those rolling hills that are that are more of a savanna type. It, it, it really was interesting. And in because you, as you talk about different aspects of walking these hillsides for merns, you know, when, when I'm on top of this oak savanna, and like you say, if somebody took a blindfold off me, I would have said, oh, I'm in Montana. And it felt mm -hmm. like I was hunting um, sharp tails and huns. And then as you, kind of climb down into these coolies with a lot more evergreens and like you say this the density of the forest is thicker there are moments where a covey of merns would flush off a point you could see them on the ground and they would flush and you couldn't get a shot off just like rough yeah. grouse hunting in the north woods and yeah. and then there's other times when you're in oak savannas where it's kind of this mixed grass and in living oaks where you feel like you're you're in bob white quail country it's you know it's not quite the same you know the oak you change out the oaks for the piney woods of the southeastern united states but it does have that feel like boy this is this i could be in georgia and, <laughs> and that's what i what i just absolutely loved about Merns hunting. Well, there there's so many things to love about Merns hunting. That that the birds hold for point incredibly well. That it's just it really cool to see the covey explode. But probably my favorite was the topography and the sense of sense of place that you get when you hunt Merns. They just it's so unique, and I haven't ever experienced a hunt or a bird that kind of puts you in some in a, in a place that's 
incredibly unique where in a moment you feel like you're in Montana in another moment you feel like you're in Minnesota and in another moment you feel like you're in Georgia and, and it sounds like you've traveled um, bird hunted across the country enough places to 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 see some of those parallels don't you yeah yeah I've I've hunted uh, grouse and in, in various states and quail in in various states so yeah I've done a little bit of traveling uh, the other thing about Mern's quail is when you get them in hand, they look so exotic. You think you're in South America or, or some some jungle area. It, that's a hundred percent right. They, I, I read some some descriptions of them, and one word kept coming up, and that's the word cryptic. Yeah, uh, you've I'm sure you've heard that word referred to. That what explain what 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 that descriptor means for Mern's quail. It essentially means uh, camouflaged, and and they're they're uh, evolved to live in that grassland uh, savanna habitat. And their means of escape for predators is to hunker down and hide right where they're standing. A lot of other quail species run a good deal, and uh, Mern's quail tend to just hunker down and hide. And that uh, behavior is very effective because of that cryptic coloration on their backs. Now, if you have a, if you had a Mern's quail in your hand, uh, if you had a male Mern's quail in your hand and you turn it upside down, it's, he's wearing a polka dotted vest and, uh, and black shorts. And he's got <laughs> this black and white pattern on his face that looked kind of like a, a mustache and, and sideburns. And then this ill-fitting toupee of a, of a top knot on his head. And you'd think, how could something so odd looking, it looks like a clown. How could how could that hide? Hmm. But when you turn them over on their on their belly and look at their backs, that mottled brown uh, pattern with the streaks in it uh, blends in very well with the bunch grass habitat that they that they live in. And uh, I've seen that same sort of pattern. A friend of mine pointed it out to me on the backs of uh, sharp-tailed grouse that had that hmm. very same. So they've probably evolved in similar conditions hiding in in tall grass. And I I read somewhere that Merns are predated only by species from the sky, in other words, raptors. So that's why they hunker and sort of turtle down. Is that is that accurate that there's there isn't ground predators? Um, I think uh, there's probably the odd fox that gets lucky and catches a, a Merns quail every now and then. But as far as adult mortality, uh, uh, raptors are the largest source of, of adult predation. There's a variety of, of nest predators, of course, skunks and raccoons and and uh, coatamundis, which are kind of like a Mexican raccoon. And mm. and even javelina will eat nests when they encounter them. But, uh, but the adults, the, the biggest source of, of predation from for adults is is uh, raptors and i think that's true of most quail species but other quail species evade predators in a different manner right right yeah because you mentioned you know you think about you know the the valley quail which are in arizona the gambles quail and the scale quail which are in arizona in big numbers they're i mean they're they're all track stars they yeah. they're i think i equate them to they're they're more like pheasants than they are like bobwhites in terms of their first instinct is to run, whereas I feel like bobwhites and merns, and really, 
with Murns, their first instinct, like you say, is to hunker, hide, and hope that the predator slash hunter doesn't yeah. pick up their scent and goes around them. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that uh, behavior, they is so ingrained that they will respond in that, in that fashion, even when there is no cover. Um, I've seen them hunker down on pavement before huh. and, uh, you know, a whole covey walking across a road would just hunker down and hu try and hide right where they're sitting. And so yeah. that uh, behavior is not very effective if there's not good cover. And that's why uh, some of the land management practices like grazing can have a severe impact to the populations. And so uh, some of the research that we did uh, um, back in the late 90s was trying to uh, trying to provide recommendations to help uh, help the forest uh, manage grazing in Merns quail habitat and so in order to protect that that cover. Okay. Uh, some of the research back in the 70s, um, when they started looking at diets and just general ecology of Merns quail, they found that uh, that the foods that they feed on, this is also unique of, for Merns quail, is they, they dig up underground bulbs and tubers that they feed on. And those, those foods actually are more prolific in, in grazed habitat. If, but if, if there's too much grazing, the birds are absent. And so that's where they first uh, um, realized that it's the grass cover that's important as a cover, not so much as a diet uh, item. And so conceivably, there would be this perfect level of grazing where you might maximize the food resources without removing too much cover. And so that's what our research was, was designed to try and help identify what that level would be and how much how much residual cover you had to maintain to enhance survival while maximizing the uh, food resource availability. Yeah, it, it, the tuber, that was one of the things that you learn pretty quickly when you find merns when you're hunting them and you find them, um, they tend to be like, there's these little holes where they digging in the ground for, for these what you come to learn that they're tubers. Yeah. Um, that's pretty, is that a way that a lot of hunters look for them? They look for exposed ground where there's dig spots. Yeah, it de definitely. You, you want to hunt the right habitat. Um, one thing about Mern's quail habitat, especially the type of country you're where you're, that you were talking about where you have these savannas, the, there's generally these, uh, these canyons that are mm -hmm. not necessary. Some of them are very steep and deep, but but uh, the rolling hills are, are a little bit easier walking. But there's often a a uh, sharp contrast between north and south facing slopes. On the north facing slopes is where all those live oaks will be. On the south facing slopes, it's more open and grassland. And occasionally, if there are trees, they're they're mesquite trees, and um, and they're sparse. And uh, most often you will find those coveys on those north facing slopes. Mm. It, um, and, and it's not because they're feeding on acorns, although they do eat acorns. Um, it's because the, that shaded area provides the, the microclimate that, that uh, where those tubers and, and uh, bulbs are growing, those forbs that produce those, those plants. And so they're mostly doing that digging under the, those oak trees. And so even though you'd, You'd much prefer to find them in the open. Mm -hmm. They're not often in the open. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, when you're searching that area and you see your dogs start to act birdie, 
Mm -hmm. um, that's when you start looking on the ground for that digging and and uh, and the way you tell if it's fresh is if your dog is standing in it on point. Mm -hmm. Then it's <laughs> then you get your, time to get your thumb on your safety. Yeah. <laughs> um, so do they? I'm assuming that the chicks, um, after they hatch, they they eat insects like like other birds, right? And yeah. at some at some point they transition transition to the tubers as they get older. Yeah. Yeah. When when we were doing our research, um, we were doing su surveys throughout the year, not just during the quail season. And we found that the number of coveys that we encountered increased, like doubled after the first frost of the year. Hmm. And our theory was that because the adults will eat insects, too. All quail will eat insects when they're available, but they generally are, aren't available after it gets cold, you know. Right. And so uh, that was our theory was that that once the uh, once that first frost hit, it killed off most of the insects and birds were no longer just gleaning insects off of plants. They were starting to dig for tubers. And I think in that process of, of moving around and digging, they leave more scent than when they're just wandering around feeding on insects. Hmm. And this is kind of speculative, but that was my guess as to what was going on because uh, suddenly the dogs were finding twice as many cubbies. And with Mern's quail, you're entirely dependent on those dogs to find the birds. You can, you can walk right by coveys. I've had, I've had uh, coveys that I subsequently found that I had walked within 10 feet of them and they didn't mm. flush and the dogs finally got on the right scent trail and found them. And so, so anything that can, uh, that can challenge the dog's ability to find, find the coveys really, uh, challenges your ability to, to detect cubbies. Even to the point where, you know, there, there's a lot of species that people say there's, there's always going to be a sleeper bird, right? Like a sharp tail, a covey of sharp tails flush. And there always tends to be one last one after your shotgun is empty. Well, with yeah. Merns, <laughs> right? With Merns, it felt like there was, there was more than one sleeper bird. Like, Generally, like one bird would take off, like the century bird would flush, and then it'd be the big flush, and then you'd have like three or four popcorn flushes afterwards. Yeah. Is that is that kind of indicative of, of a Mern's encounter? Yeah, that's that's fairly common. It's it's it seems uncanny in that I think that this they flush at the sound of my gun clanging open. <laughs> Because <laughs> when I'm standing there empty is when they when the easy birds seem to flush. Yeah, and uh, that's one of those pieces of advice that I give people that I don't actually follow. But <laughs> I tell them you don't necessarily want to shoot at the first bird that flushes because that might not be the easiest shot you get. But right. the other thing about Mern's quail is um, it's because you're entirely dependent on those dogs to find them. It's a covey rise hunt. If a uh, on gamble quail, I I tell people that that you probably are better off watching them land and going to try and hunt singles because that's where you're going to have your better shooting opportunities because gamble quail will often flush out of range because they run and they flush wild as a covey. But once you break them up, you can you can get some birds that will hold tight as singles. Mm. With Mern's quail, because you're entirely dependent on those dogs, 
a cubby rise might be all you get because it's hard to find those. The dogs are generally challenged at finding the sing singles. And I think it's because one bird stinks less than 10. Mm -hmm. And so, so you can't count on finding the singles. The other thing is the tree cover makes it difficult to mark them down because they just disappear behind trees. And so it's, it's hard to tell where they went, you know, although they tend to not fly as far as, as other species of quail. Sometimes they only fly 50 yards or so before they sit down again. Do they whistle each other back together or how do they, how do they come back they, together as a cubby? They do call and they, um, I think they call so low and quietly though that you don't hear it very often. Hmm. I can only think of maybe a half dozen times during my years of quail hunting that I have located a covey by hearing them calling. Wow. And uh, whereas it's nearly every day that I gamble quail hunt that I locate the covey by hearing them first, you know. Wow. But, uh, but Mern's quail are very quiet. In fact, there was research done back in the 70s looking at using call counts as an index to breeding breeding populations. And they've established those relationships for many of the, of the quail species, including mm -hmm. scale quail, gamble quail, and bobwhites. But they found that, that Mern's quail just didn't call frequently or loud enough to, to reliably use it as an index to the population. Okay. And um, yeah, like I said, the few times that I have, have heard it, it's it was in years when the bird numbers were high enough that you didn't actually need that assistance to find coveys. You know, they were locked coveys those years. And so the dogs were doing fine at finding them without hearing them call. So but they do have a, a, a call that an assembly call and, a, and and then the males, of course, call for females in the spring. Well, it, it, that's a great transition because that's what I'm I'm interested in learning a, a bit more about the biology of Merns. Like, when when their breeding season is what makes for good breeding habitat and breeding good breeding weather and so so let's let's start there with um with breeding and then take us through to nesting and and uh, let's let's talk about the life cycle of a marine quail okay um generally the coveys break up in uh, in february and march and the first pairing is is often well, the peak of the pairing is in march and sometimes you'll see it as early as late February, which is kind of odd because they don't nest until uh, the summertime. So they have a long pairing season. And uh, so that that's another reason that 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 uh, residual grass cover that's available um, at that time of year is so important because it's protecting your your breeding population, your breeding pairs. And so um, so the. Uh, the nesting occurs generally after the first uh, monsoons start, and they they call it, refer to the summer rains in Arizona as monsoon rains, and uh, they usually start in late June and early July, and so the nesting occurs over uh, over that uh, July to September period during that hmm. rainy. Rain so period. so are they are the birds actually mating in late February and March? No, they're not breeding until they're not breeding until uh, right uh, they before have a, nesting. Yeah, they they they're not breeding until July. They have a 21, 21 to twenty six day gestation um, or or incubation. I'm sorry. Okay. Um, so they're uh, they're breeding in in July, and the and the the uh, chicks are born then in in late July or early August. 
but it, it's kind of dependent on that rainfall. So it can move a week or two in either direction, depending on when those rains start. So the pairing though, does that mean one male to one female or will the male, you know, service multiple females? Yeah, that, um, most quail species have, I'm going to throw out a big, big term. <laughs> most, most quail species exhibit, uh, how does it go? Ambisexual polyandry, hmm. meaning multiple males, a male may mate with multiple females and a female may mate with multiple males. And so it happens and it's been documented in most of them. I don't know that it's been documented in Mern's quail in the wild. I would bet that somebody's been able to document it in a pen raise situation, but I don't know that it's been documented in the wild. The The hard thing about documenting that is you have to have marked animals so that, you know, wearing tr transmitters. Sure. And, and there's challenges to, to Mern's quail, uh, to using transmitters on quail in general, just because they're such small animals, it's hard to put enough battery on them, you know, a big enough transmitter that lasts for any length of time. Sure. And then uh, Mern's quail are, are difficult because of their diet. It's You can't just throw out uh, chicken feed and have them walk into a trap like many of the other quail species. So um, so that makes it, it difficult. So we're just kind of the the level of research on Mern's quail is not the at the point that it is with bobwhites. But I would I would I would guess that it probably occurs in in Mern's quail in the wild. I think the more common uh, occurrence that I've heard about the, more common uh, documentation of that is one female that will nest with multiple males and the males will then raise that brood. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and I know that that's been documented in, in many of the quail species. Um, I think it probably occurs at a low enough rate that it's not a significant influence on the, on the next year's population, but it does occur. Mm. But uh, generally, Mern's quail, when you see a covey in the fall, it's generally just uh, a male-female pair and their brood from that year. Okay. Many covey, uh, or many of the other quail species, their coveys will be uh, multiple pairs with their broods. And that's why you can have coveys of 20, 30, 40, 50 birds, you know, of, of species like gambles quail or scale quail. Right. But Mern's quail tend to be just a, a pair and their brood from that, that year. So the covey sizes. A covey of 15 is a, is a big covey. And uh, generally, you, you're seeing, by the time the hunting season rolls around, you're seeing coveys on the average of, of eight or 10 birds in an average year. And the type of habitat that they're nesting in, you know, when, when I'm walking through that oak savanna and the coulee, my assumption is that they're nesting kind of in that open grass areas, but... It, Tell me if that's true or false. Where, where's, where's prime nesting habitat for a Mern's family? I don't know that there's a distinct nesting habitat um, that's different from the, the habitat that they occupy the rest of the year, but they do nest in that bunch grass and their nests are uh, sort of burrowed out at the base of, of, of a bunch grass. So it's, it's an area that has good grass cover um, and it's, uh, yeah, it's it's on the slopes that the same slopes where you would find them feeding the rest of the, of the year. You you mentioned Just, the word burrowed, so it's 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 not the same kind of a nest 
that you would think about with a bob white, is it? I mean, there is sort of a, it's sort of dug into. Yeah, a, there's kind of a, it's kind of a woven opening, sort of a tunnel down into the bunch grass. Hmm. But it's it's not necessarily under a piece of cover like uh, like a thick shrub or a or a low a low shrub or or a dead log or anything like that. It's generally just in that bunch grass, just at the base of those bunch grass, kind of burrowed under or sort of uh, woven in underneath there. Okay. Okay. And so similar clutch size to the other quail species in that 11 it's, they're actually yeah they're it's it's actually smaller than than uh, species like gambles or scale quail uh clutch size is average clutch size is probably 8 to 12 but okay uh, gambles quail you know get up to 15 18 uh, chicks in in a clutch so uh, so they they don't have quite the reproductive capacity that gambles quail do, and consequently it takes uh, several good years of favorable precipitation to bring your Mearns quail populations up. And More so, gamble quail. It, what was surprising to me is where you know you're hunting in these oak savannas, and and literally you have snow covered mountaintops all around you. And, you know, it's not uncommon to have snow on the ground. Um, mm -hmm. Is there a need for, you know, this is a, a Northern pheasant hunter asking this question, is there a need for, for thermal cover, winter cover for Mern's quail in this Oak Savanna recipe? Yeah, there's, that's an interesting question because um, we, we do have Mern's quail populations that exist or occur at higher elevations where it gets really cold up in in that country like you were talking about up around pine top there's Mern's quail up there and um and we haven't studied them but it would be interesting the thing that 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 causes me to question those what's going on with those populations is that that ground freezes in the winter time and for a, a species that has to dig for a living mm -hmm. i don't understand how they they must be either switching their diet or they're moving to some protected pockets that that might be like you're you're inferring here that there's some winter cover that is necessary for those populations but i think over their range i don't think that's as big a deal because they are really a, a tropical species you know that we're at the northern edge of their distribution mm. so um so they they just don't encounter that much that much real cold uh, conditions. But there was a research project that found that there was a high mortality when we had really extended uh, cold snaps. Hmm. And so they that certainly limits their distribution. But but I don't think they've evolved in for that. So they it's not like they have a, a mechanism to seek out uh, that that uh, protected habitat but again what's going on with those birds up, up at the higher elevations in the state i do not know and and i'd be interested but it would it, that would require a pretty intensive uh long-term study with with telemetry to to really get at those answers yeah i, I don't know the geography of 
Arizona super well, but the distance between Tucson and Pine Top is quite a ways. Yeah. Um, I'm assuming the season isn't open up near Pine Top, is it? No, the season opens at the same time. It's a statewide season. It is. Okay. But, and I know, I, I, I'm sure there's hunters up there and the locals that know about those populations and probably hunt them every year, but I don't think they get a whole lot of hunting pressure. I don't think, I don't think it's widely known. Hmm. And as far as just, you know, what's going on with those, I noticed that, uh, I've studied other, other species in Arizona, other, other game species in Arizona and, and, uh, we had some big uh, wildfires in the past over the past couple of decades. Um, and after two of the biggest wildfires in Arizona uh, history, I noticed the uh, the oxalis, which is that the tuber that they feed on, which is a pretty important part of their diet, makes up about 70 to 80 percent of their diet in wow. the fall and winter. Um, I noticed those plants were growing like a carpet after that, after the Wallow Fire, which was a, the largest wildfire in Arizona history, and the Rodeo Chetiskai Fire, which was the previous largest wildfire in Arizona history. And that was the Rodeo Chetiskai is on the Rim Country over near Heber, and the Wallow Fire is is in the White Mountains, which is over near Pine Top and, and uh, Springerville. In those areas, I noticed a lot of that oxalis, and I also started seeing Mern's quail and talked to others who had seen Mern's quail. And um, I think those populations probably live there, um, or there are probably birds there all the time. I don't think that they've dispersed from Southeast Arizona clear up there. I think that there's probably birds that live there all the time, but they occur at such low numbers that you don't encounter them until a situation that improves their habitat like that, those wildfires. Huh. That, and so, Again, that's another more research that if they would just uh, let turn me loose with my bird dogs, I'd love to go. Do. <laughs> <laughs> well, it does make for an, another nice transition because I was curious about what habitat work, habitat management work um, is necessary or, or, or happens to improve conditions formers so you know your description of these wildfires le leads me to believe that prescribed fire is a tool that um should be or is employed um in Mern's country to improve habitat um for the species yeah i, th I think there is you know there is wildfire being uh, implemented um to improve to improve wildlife habitat I don't know that that it's specifically designed for Mern's quail in mind, but I think I think it does improve the conditions. It's immediate. The immediate effects are not good because it removes that cover. Mm -hmm. But I think the long term, longer term effects by by uh, um, setting back the succession and, and allowing uh, proliferation of those forbs that they feed on um, if under the right conditions. You know, you got to have the right rainfall, of course, after the wildfire. But uh, under the right conditions, it doesn't improve the long-term uh, habitat conditions for Burns quail. Um, another thing as far as improving habitat conditions or, or protecting habitat um, after wildfires or, or other disturbances, um, one of the things that I know that the Southern Arizona, uh, Southeastern Arizona Quail Forever chapter has done is uh, they've helped with uh, placing 
what they call loose rock structures. They're spreader dams that they put in drainages to prevent uh, surface flow, to slow down surface flow, increase infiltration. And that's one thing that they've done um, in Mern's Quail Habitat specifically to improve habitat for Mern's Quail. As the, after, especially after a, a disturbance like a wildfire, you have a, a lot of, of, of runoff after, when the rains do come. And so anything you can do to slow that rain, that runoff down will will allow that water to infiltrate. And of course, it's Arizona, so it's arid. So mm -hmm. so any 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 way we can keep water on the landscape is a good thing. Yeah, it also kind of helps deposit that soil. The deep loamy soil sort of deposits above those little dams, and that's the soil. That soil is ideal for for those forbs that they that they dig up for the, that produce the tubers that they feed on. And, and I know, you know, guzzlers, uh, water structures in the desert for desert quail are an important component of um, promoting bird populations. But I don't recall seeing guzzlers or water structures of any kind in Mern's country. Um, yeah. Is there any need for that in Mern's country? I, I really don't think there is. Um, there are some... Uh, you know, there's of course livestock ponds and livestock waters, and uh, but I have I have never seen a Mern's quail take a drink. Mm -hmm. I've seen scale quail and gamma quail lining up on on ponds, on the edges of ponds and and cattle troughs, but I've never seen Mern's quail drinking. And um, and the times that I've found them near near stock ponds, I've always found feeding sign above the stock pond, which is the same kind of thing I was talking about with that loamy soil being deposited as the runoff comes down in to fill that pond, that soil up above on the upstream side of that pond is an ideal place for those forbs to grow. And so I think when I found them near ponds, I think that they were feeding and not not necessarily using the water. Hmm. So um, I think they get, if you look at their diet, if you look at the food items in their crop, it's it's more conceivable that they can get the free water from their food items much better than, than most other quail species. Sure. Uh, you talked about earlier in our discussion about um, grazing being a component of creating the habitat. I'm assuming then that grazing, a graze, grazing regime is part of a habitat management approach for, for merits. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, and it's fortunate in that sky Island region those islands that we're talking about, which are the mountain ranges that rise up out of the desert, uh, as soon as you get up about 4,000 feet elevation, it's forest service property. The The Coronado National Forest in, in southeast Arizona is um, pretty much uh, encompasses all of all of the Mern's quail habitat in, mm -hmm. in, in the state, or well, in southeast Arizona, that is. And so... Um, and so that's fortunate because the Forest Service tends to do a, a pretty good job of managing public lands in terms of, of grazing management and uh, forest management. And so um, they have been receptive to our, our uh, recommendations as far as, as uh, maintaining that, that, that residual cover that I was talking about, providing a grazing regime that, that allows uh, enough grass to remain that that protects birds from predation and uh, and they seem to be doing a pretty good job of it across the forest now that's not to say that there aren't some pastures that are severely overgrazed but they have been more receptive when we pointed those out as well so 
So, um, yeah, I think, I think they're doing a pretty fair job. Um, the other thing, the other most important component of the habitat then is the precipitation and, uh, and Mern's quail are dependent on that summer, uh, rainfall, like I was mm. earlier. And so, um, this year has not been a, this year was, I think the driest summer on record in Arizona. And so, in uh, last year, bird numbers were oh, probably average or um, so it wasn't like we had a big bumper crop to build off of, and then uh, and then we were were hit with that drought this summer, and so bird numbers this year are not not very good. At all. And the amount of rain that makes a good year versus a, a bad year is a, a pretty small margin for Arizona in the summer, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Some of the um, an average year of rainfall in, in Mern's quail habitat would be 14, 14 inches of, of rain throughout the year. And half of that would fall or better than half of that would fall in the summertime. And so um, the other thing about the summer rains is they tend to be more isolated. They're these, uh, these isolated thunder showers that build over these mountain ranges. And so some, some years you might have one mountain range that just misses out for, for mm. one reason or another. So you can have, you can have good bird populations in one mountain range and not the next. Um, whereas the, the winter rain comes across in big fronts that, that kind of soak the whole state. And so, uh, so on Mern's quail numbers, it's, it's a little bit more difficult to predict where the good hunting is going to be each year. Unless and, you know where the rains but, were exactly. Yeah, yeah, and actually, there's there's more and more precise information on that available these days. But but yeah, sometimes it's a result of you know you have to wait until the, later in the season and, and start talking to people and get some recent intel before you before you uh, know precisely where to go. Yeah, you know you've um, you've talked really well about um, how important rain is and. Um, when we were talking about Pine Top and in the kind of the geographic range about Merns being the northern um, part of the range in Arizona, it, it got me thinking about temperature. My assumption is because they they are a species that really goes down into South America, that temperature isn't much of a concern when it's when it's super warm in Arizona in the summer. They're probably pretty used to that. It really does come back to how much mo how much moisture is on the landscape is that is that accurate like they they're just not bothered by really hot you know 118 degree summer days yeah i think i think you know again this is these are questions that are best answered with with telemetry research and there just hasn't been a lot done but i think they survive the heat much better than they do the cold and um and they um yeah the the hot the hot and dry is not good for them mm -hmm. but uh, i don't know that it's as much uh, a survival thing as far as adult survival i don't i don't think it affects adult survival so much as it just affects the productivity of the habitat and the you know there's no food for the chicks when they're born and then there's no uh, food for the adults or you know the the brood once it's it goes past the stage of eating insects because the those summer rains also it affects the cover. Those summer rains produce those those bunch grasses that they need for cover, 
as well as those forbs that they need for food. And so they're really dependent on that summer rain. But I don't think the heat bothers them so much as, as the dryness. Is there anything related to their biology or their life cycle that, you know, that, that I've missed asking about that's a particularly unique factoid about Mern's quail that, that somebody would um, be surprised to hear? Um, I guess we've talked about most everything. I think the, the one thing that's really unique and, but we have touched on it, but is that, is that diet that, that, that they dig for those underground bulbs and tubers. There's, there's no other quail species that, that, uh, feed that way. And no, no other quail species in the United States that is, um, there we're actually the, the, uh, one of the things, uh, there's a, there's a terminology. Some people refer to them as Montezuma quail and some of them refer to them as Mern's quail. Yeah. Um, technically, this is my take on it, but, <laughs> but the Montezuma quail is more of a general term referring to all the, all the subspecies of that, of that Montezuma quail species. And uh, the subspecies that exists in the United States is the Mern subspecies. Hmm. And so the term Mern's quail might be actually more specific to if you're talking about quail if you're talking about in Arizona or New Mexico or Texas um, that is the Mern subspecies of, of Montezuma quail so you that might actually be a more specific term than just Montezuma quail hmm. um, the other subspecies occur down in Mexico and then as you get farther into Mexico down around the the uh, the equator um, there is an oscillated quail that is very similar in appearance to a Mern's quail. And I suspect that they have this similar diet. Um, but the Mern's quail, in addition, you know, to, to, to be able to, to access those, those underground bulbs and tubers, they have elongated claws and they have really powerful legs. And, um, and those, they also have a larger bill. If you hold their head up next to a, to a gamble quail or scale quail or bob white, you'll see the difference in their bill size. And, and the Mern's quail are, are handling um, much larger food items than, than the other quail species. Hmm. And they even eat, like I said earlier, they even eat acorns. Um, and so they can, of course, they're smaller acorns than what you would, you would see back east, but they're, they're on the size of, a, on the order of a, a pea or a peanut, that, that big of, of food item, huh. whereas all the other quail species are, are eating much smaller food items. Right. The other thing about those legs, um, those powerful legs, it it they launch from those legs. They use them to just spring up in the air, and that's to help them clear that 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 the grass. thick grass cover. And they've built those legs by digging <laughs> all their lives, and so they really pop up when they when they flush. They, uh, in a, aside from from being so well camouflaged and they seem to just pop out of nowhere. They really pop straight up in the air when they flush before they start flying. And, and uh, so that that's kind of unique. Mm -hmm. When you eat a Merns next to a different species, say Gambles, Scaly, Bob White, can you tell the difference in taste between the species of quail? I think I can. Um, I don't know if you blindfolded me if I could tell, <laughs> but but just looking at the breasts, they are bigger. They're um, 
they're the the largest weight wise of quail other than the mountain quail mm. um the mountain quail is the biggest and it's nearly the size of a chucker you know mm-hmm. <laughs> but the but Mern's quail look small because they have such a short tail and because they 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 don't tend to stand upright and run around like like the other quails so they look small but they're actually weight wise they're the biggest of the three in Arizona and uh, the biggest of all the subspecies or of all the species I'm sorry other than the mountain quail of course and so if I had a if I had a quail breast in hand I could tell you which one is it I could probably tell you which one was a Mern's quail unless you did something sneaky like <laughs> like mix up some juveniles in there or something but uh, I often feel like the Mern's quail are a little more succulent and and uh, moist and I think they taste better but it could be that you have to work harder for Mern's quail mm-hmm. and so you <laughs> you want to appreciate them more maybe that's it's a mental thing but but yeah I do think they're a little a little tastier than than the other quail species. You talked about the strength of their legs. Is there a, any difference in the the taste or the size of a of a Mern's quail's legs and thighs? I think they're a little they're a little more plump. They look like Popeye's arms, if you know what I uh-huh. mean. And and um, but I think they can be stringy because like well, like all upland birds, they'll have some pretty powerful tendons in there. And I think Mern's quail are among the quail, they might be a little bit uh, stringier on their legs, but uh, but yeah, I know I I they are they are good to eat. Yeah, no doubt about it. So as I, it seems to me, and this could just be my own little bubble, but uh, the last three years, when I look at social media, but particularly on Instagram, that there has been a unbelievable surge in the number of bird hunters traveling to Arizona in January to chase Mern's quail. Do your license sales reflect what I've seen on Instagram? I I think they do. I don't know that we track it um, specific to what type of, of hunter is coming. You know, we don't, we just look at license sales. So the bump in license sales we wouldn't be able to de- detect Mern's quail hunter from a coyote hunter, but but um, we do have we do have some more uh, specific surveys that we where we can look at that. But but just license sales, it's hard to say. But I think um, I agree with what you're saying based on what I've seen in the field when I've been out. It seems like every year um, there's a, a pretty uh, pretty consistent. Um, number of Mern's quail hunters in the field, especially opening weekend, the first couple of weeks. Um, if it's a good year, that that uh, that will, you know, continue throughout the season. But it, in the poor years, the Mern's quail hunters numbers seem to drop off after the first weekend. But but anyways, uh, yeah, I, I think they've become real popular. The word is out, you know, and it is like you were saying, it's it's beautiful weather down here. It's it's gorgeous country to be to be chasing a bird dog in, and uh, and um, the the birds themselves are are probably the best best we have in the United States in terms of working with pointing dogs. Mm-hmm. And so uh, uh, the the uh, pointing dog crowd is aware of that, and and uh, and they're coming to the to the state every year. And- so you mentioned opening day because that was one of the other questions I had was, again, 
perception doesn't mean it's right, but my perception was opening day, early season, uh, kind of the, the Arizonans that live there, they're likely hunting December. And then when a lot of seasons close up north, people leave early for spring break and, and spend the, you know, a week in January um, mm-hmm. as non-resident hunters in Arizona. Is that a correct perception or am I all full of hot air? I'm, I think you're probably correct. I don't know that we have uh, the data to show that. I know when we did back um, 20 years ago, when we when we did our research, we looked specifically at at hunter numbers through time, and there was a there was a peak at the opening weekend, and then there was a peak after Christmas, mm-hmm. and um, and then kind of another bump at the end. So, I think people going out for their last try for that at, as at the season end, you know, was was what caused that rise at the end. But um, as far as I think the best time to hunt them is that uh that time right but right around the first of the year because um or if if you get it depends on what what you describe what you what you value later in the season towards the end of the season the um the juvenile males will all be fully feathered mm-hmm. and so they're all pretty. early in the season the juvenile males they're that that mustache and sideburn pattern on their face that I talked about before is not fully developed. And so they don't look as striking. And so later in the season, it's, it's nice for that reason, but also later in the season, some of the easier hunting areas have been hit pretty hard. Mm -hmm. And uh, even though, even though they are the, the tightest holding birds that you'll ever want to hunt, they do start to learn to ways to evade hunters after they've been chased a bit. And, and you do see a result of of intense hunting pressure in terms of bird numbers, and so so later in the season it can be more difficult to find birds. But again, like I said, you can you can find uh, juveniles that that are fully feathered and, and look look more spectacular. Um, early in the season it's difficult because it's crowded in some of the most popular areas, and because you haven't had time to get out and find find where the best hunting is so often that that best time to hunt in my mind is is right after the first of the year right after Mm. right after january 1st there's still lots of lots of places left to hunt and you and you've probably had a chance to get out find the best places so again social media can can throw off a person's perception because you I'm I'm sure my concentra- my on my feed there's a higher concentration of bird hunters than than the general public. So it does feel like when I l- flip through in January, like everybody I know goes to Arizona. But then when I went last year, um, you know, I was I, my expectation was there going to be hunters everywhere because geographically it's not a giant footprint of land to spread out hunters. But when you get down there, it's, it's awfully big. And yeah. they're really like, I, you know, I hunted three days and we never got to a spot that somebody else was hunting at. Not once. I did see other hunters driving from spot to spot, 
but not a single time was anybody parked where I was planning to go or walking in a field where I got cut off. I mean, you didn't even see anybody walking in the same field because these, these ranges are just so immense. Is that an accurate representation of like hunting pressure? Yeah, there's a surge in interest in Merns, but it's not such a surge that anybody should be worried about their population. Is that an accurate statement? Yeah, I, th I think you're. I think you're right. I, I, I notice opening weekend that it 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 is definitely crowded in the in the uh, most popular spots, and I often see people parked in the spot that I want to hunt. But I, like you, rarely see them after that week. I rarely see people. Um, I see people driving. And um, and occasionally I'll see them, you know, parked in the in the general area where I'm going hunting. But I rarely see anybody that's, you know, hunting the same canyon as me where I actually see the people in the field. Mm -hmm. But um, um, in the really good years, I did I did see, uh, you know, you did you did notice that it was crowded in some places. But also in the really good years, you have options. If you go to the first spot and somebody's parked there the next canyon over is likely to be just as good. And so, so it, um, but I think generally what happens is, is there's, there's probably a certain percentage of the hunting public that are very, uh, very um, dedicated will go every single year. And then there's a, a much larger percent that are waiting on the, on the intel from those, those hardcore hunters. And if it sounds like it's not going to be a year, good year, they don't show up. Or if they do show up, they only show up for a couple of days. When we looked at the harvest, um, what affected the the total harvest, the um, the number of hunters is what really drives the harvest. Mm -hmm. So uh, the number of birds bagged per day is not does not uh, change too much. It's it's pretty pretty low. Um, and so by changing the bag limits, you're not having a big effect on the harvest. Mm. The only way to control the harvest really is to control the total number of hunters. And those pretty much control themselves because of the things that I had just talked about where you have, you have people that are, they're watching social media or just getting the news some from other sources that, uh, that learn that it's not a good Merns quail year that just don't show up or, or if they do show up, they don't hunt very many days. So, so um, it's, I don't think the, that the birds are, the populations are in danger. Um, when we've, when we've looked at it through research, we've found when we, we ran surveys in hunted and unhunted areas and um, every year in the hunted areas, we'd see a decline in bird numbers throughout the season. But the next year, the following year, the bird numbers were higher in those hunted areas than they were in the unhunted areas. Mm. And so what that told us was that bird numbers are fluctuating independent of hunting pressure. And the fact that they were higher is likely due to something entirely independent of hunting. You know, it, it might be that the habitat happened to be slightly better in that year in those in those hunted areas. But um, but clearly you're not able to stockpile birds by by closing the hunting right. and um, and then again the harvest itself is affected by factors or is, is largely self-limiting um, and as far as a bag limit is concerned 
because so few people bag more than a f three or four birds per day on average, you would really have to drop the bag limit down to that level to really affect the harvest. Mm. And then all the research that we've done so far has not shown that the harvest affects the subsequent year's populations. So what that's, we've kind of settled on this eight birds per day to try and, and spread the harvest out across the season, keep bird numbers high throughout the season. But it's not, um, it's not because we think controlling harvest is necessary to, to maintain the populations or protect the population. I, I always say that uh, there are generations of Mern's quail that have never seen a burned, bird dog. Huh. Even when you think, even in those years when you think there isn't a parking spot in Mern's quail country that doesn't have somebody with a, with a truck full of dogs in it, they live in in so many different areas that don't get hunted, that don't lend themselves to hunting, that I don't think there is any danger of us wiping out the, the species with sport hunting. Right. right. And, and it, you touched on the amount of land. There, There is a lot of public land accessible to the traveling bird hunter in southern Arizona, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. And if, you, um, if you're really interested in Mern's quail hunting and... and uh, um, a good resource would be to get the Coronado National Forest map. And just uh, like I said earlier, that the Coronado National Forest boundary pretty much encompasses Mern's quail habitat in, in southeast Arizona. And you'll see on that that there are thousands and thousands of acres to hunt. I know, I know a guy, just, just about every one of these mountain ranges down here, there is a Sycamore Canyon. And I know a guy that told me, he said, one year I just went... And I went to every canyon that was called Sycamore Canyon and hunted Mern's quail. And I found Mern's quail and, <laughs> and harvested Mern's quail in Sycamore Canyon in like six or eight different mountain ranges. <laughs> so, yeah, there's there's all of those mountain ranges hold Mern's quail. And it's just a matter of finding the one that, that had the best rainfall and, and finding the one that's not too darn steep to hunt. <laughs> uh, you, you mentioned um, generations of, of Mern's quail. What's what's the average lifespan of a of a merns? They live year and a half, two years, or or, or older? yeah, I think it's the same as as most quail. That uh, a three year old bird would be ancient. Okay, you know, an average lifespan is probably a year and a half, or two years maybe. Okay, and um, and and actually, a, a great majority of them don't even survive a, a full year. You know, and so. Uh, so it's um, they're what they call our selected species. They they have a high high reproductive rate yep. and a low survival rate. So they're more akin to a uh, a salmon than a trout. Or, I mean, I'm sorry, a salmon than an elk. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> if you want to talk about different harvestable game species. Sure. So before we turned on the recording, you mentioned you know, you're, you're going to get out quail hunting this weekend. So, yeah. Um, I think that's a, a great place for us to kind of close out this, this episode is tell us what you're thinking about as you figure out where you're going to hunt this weekend. What, what are the factors that are going through your mind to determine your, your Mern's quail hunt on, uh, on Saturday or Sunday? Um, well, first of all, <laughs> the first factor is, is 
my knowledge of the of the recent rainfall patterns. And because this was such a poor summer, I'm I'm not going to go marine quail hunting on Saturday. <laughs> I'm going to go gamble quail hunting on Saturday. And that's the the beauty of Arizona with the diversity that we have. Um, we have three three species that are that are uh, you know widely dispersed and in huntable numbers and and so every year there's there's at least one of those species is done well and so you have options mm -hmm. but um yeah if i were going to go merns quail hunting this would be a good good uh, weekend to do it because we did finally get some rain and so that's that's it's not going to help the population of course but it, it's going to help bird dogs find quail um and so that might be my first choice is is whether or not the conditions are right for burn squirrel hunting because like i said earlier you're entirely dependent on your dog to find those birds um my second choice would be my knowledge of 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 the local rainfall patterns of last summer which i think um there are some areas that did better every place was poor but some areas were less poor mm -hmm. and so i go to those my my third thing might be at this point in the season it's fairly late in the season i might uh opt not to try the most popular areas there's some places that are that are uh, very popular they get hit hard early in early in the year every year those the reason that they're popular is because they are consistent producers so so early in the season those are always good places to hunt but sometimes they can be crowded and they tend to get uh hit hard early so so that might be my third choice is based on where I think nobody has been hunting this year. Sure. And, and then of course, and those places, it would be based on those places. Like for the person that doesn't live in Arizona, I immediately think of two towns, Patagonia and Sonoida. Is yeah. that though? That's where everybody thinks about for Mern, right? That's kind of the heart, but there's, there's Mern's quail country out uh, west of there that, uh, over west of Nogales that um, tends to get less hunting pressure. And so often, um, and some of that country is not as productive or it's, or it's more difficult terrain, it's steeper. And so it tends to get less uh, hunting pressure. So oftentimes I'll hunt there late in the season. Another choice that uh, is similar to that is over on the Eastern part of the, of the uh, state over in the Chiricahua mountains. Hmm. Again, it's not as popular um, Mern's quail hunting spots, partly because of the terrain. The, there's some of these Sky Island mountains that that don't have the long rolling hills on the at the base, and so and they do jut up almost straight up like Devil's Tower, mm. and so those tend to not be the best Mern's quail spots. There'll be Mern's quail there, but they're not the best place to hunt. And so sometimes I'll I'll try some of those steeper, more rugged areas late in the season, and um, if I want to get away from people, or if I think that that the easy walking areas have been hit hard this year. But uh, aside from that, then I'm just looking for the right habitat and the right uh, and the right grass cover. One thing that happens in the really good years, and this is similar to what I was talking about earlier, with where I think there's birds. There, there are Mern's quail that live miles from an oak tree and they're in, in just strange places that you don't think of as Mern's quail habitat. It's kind of a, of a desert, semi-desert grassland type habitat that's, that's a little bit hilly. And, um, and I think it's like I was saying earlier about those 
those birds at the real high elevations. I think the populations probably uh, occur there all the time. It's just that they're in such low numbers that you, you don't encounter them until the conditions are right and the, and the numbers are higher. Mm. And if you can find birds in those types of habitats, um, it makes for easier hunting because you don't have to deal with those oak trees. You know, birds, like you were saying earlier, they get behind a tree before you can get your gun right. up. You have to, you have to, you have to swing and shoot and ignore the tree. The fact that the tree is there much like uh, a rough grouse hunter would do. But, uh, if you can find them in those open habitats, it, it makes for easier hunting. You know, that <clears throat> early on, I compared them at, at moments to hunting in Montana for Sharpies and Huns, moments to piney woods in, in Georgia, hunting bobwhites, moments there, they're like rough grouse in, in the North Woods. And you've brought this through a couple times. I've never chucker hunted, but there are moments when you're hunting merns that I would believe is, is very much like chucker hunting because it, I, it, I perceive chucker hunting to probably be the most physically challenging because of the elevation and the, and the vertical climb. There are times when you're hunting merns, and I think this also goes to your point about there, there are species that's not really in danger of being overhunted because you got to be in pretty darn good shape to uh, climb, to find the birds, because there's somewhat needle in a haystack, and then to make a shot, sometimes on one leg, <laughs> right? I mean, there, there, there are so many components of Mern's quail hunting that make them challenging. And it yep. really, if, if folks are listening and, and think that it's a romantic experience, it is. It's one of the most eye-opening bird hunting adventures I've ever been on, and I absolutely fell head over head over heels in love with it. Yeah, yeah, I uh, I've hunted with a few chucker hunters, and they've said, "Yeah, that's that's like chucker country with trees on it." Yeah. <laughs> you know, some of the stuff some of the stuff we've hunted in, and uh, yeah, it does make for challenging challenging conditions. I've I've uh, I've actually shot a Mern's quail from the prone position, <laughs> not, not laying on my belly, but I was laying down, but it wasn't, it wasn't a whole lot different than standing up. It was just that that, that ridge was so steep that laying down was just kind of leaning over. <laughs> and I had to kind of crawl up under this tree to flush this bird that my dog was pointing. And, and, uh, there were two birds that flushed sort of popcorn style, like you were describing. And the first one, I just took a practice swing on. I didn't, I, you know, but it was just enough of a practice that when the second one went, I repeated that and pulled the trigger. And, and my buddy said, yeah, you got it. <laughs> so, so, yeah, it, it, it can be challenging. You're, you've got a split second to duck under a limb and shoot at a bird that's going around a tree or you're, you're sliding downhill and the birds are flushing uphill. That's hard enough. That's hard to swing fast enough to shoot that bird, yeah. you know? So yeah, it, it makes for, for challenging hunting, but yeah, I love it. it it's the, um, I've worked at pheasants forever and quail forever now for, uh, coming out 18 years in, in that time, it's the only hunt that I've taken where I didn't, uh, I didn't bring my own dogs and I, Nevertheless, I still absolutely fell in love with it. 
it, it rises to the top of one of my very favorite hunts of all time. But the next the next stage for me is driving to Arizona with my own dogs. And if if you're you know guy or gal out there who's retired and time is no option, point the truck with your dogs in it. <laughs> Because, you know, I think there is some in intimidation going to a new terrain and hunting different species and, and, frankly, hunting the desert with dogs from pheasant country or bobwhite country, well, or at least non-cactus area bobwhite country, can be intimidating for sure. And I think my dogs would struggle uh, a little bit anyways with gambles quail and scaled quail in the desert but you should if you're listening to this and thinking about taking the trip to Mern's country you should have zero reservations about the safety of your dogs or your dogs being able to adapt Mern's country is like going to montana they 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 will they will adapt instantaneously they hold like woodcock uh, I mean, they're, they're, they hold tighter than woodcock and they're in a cubby. Um, it is, it, I cannot rave in a more positive way about how wonderful a bird uh, Mern's quail are. Before before we close this out, uh, uh, um, Kirby, what what have I missed? Any, any closing thoughts for us? Um, I don't, you know, there's a, a lot of, pointers that I always try and give because I often have have been uh, taking hunters out that have that are new to this to Mern's quail at least and um, one of the things that you have to you have to realize is that you can't hurt them if you almost every cubby rise on Mern's quail is over point mm -hmm. that rarely do unless your dog is just refuses to point you're most often you're gonna you're gonna have a a cubby rise that that you flush but and so you have all the time in the world to kind of circle around and people are tend to want to circle around the cubby and push them into this nice open area but that never works they, <laughs> they don't go where you want i've had times you circle above them in hopes of pushing them down across an open patch and they flush and fly up your pant leg or knock your hat off you know mm. and fly right by you and um and then the other thing is is uh, being ready to shoot. A lot of guys, you know, walk walk along with their gun slung up over their shoulder or something at the time when when they're about to flush birds. I think Merns as a covey hold tighter than any other bird, but they don't they don't hold quite as tight as as singles when they're as singles. So you tend to and and again because your dogs aren't able to smell the singles as well, you tend to to get more. Uh, more flushes that catch you off guard on the singles. And so, uh, yeah, it's, um, you gotta just keep your hands, keep your, your hands on the handles of the gun and be ready to shoot. Cause you're not going to have a whole lot of time to get that shot off. I also think about, you know, you, they do have that cryptic camouflage. Um, but so, so they do blend in with the ground, but because they hold so tight over a pointing dog, you are able a lot of times to see them on the ground when your dog's on point. One bit of advice that I would give based on, 
I don't have anywhere near the experience you have. But what I got wrapped around the axles, when I saw them on the ground, if I focused my eyes too tightly at them on the ground, I'd invariably be too slow. Because, um, yeah. and like, take your eyes, move them up and approach so you're ready to swing, not watching that bird. Because if you're focused on the bird on the ground, you're going to be too slow. You're going to miss. Yeah. It's yeah, I know what you're talking about. It almost hurts to see one on the ground. Yeah. <laughs> it's like looking at the sun. If I see one on the ground, I'm like, I'm not going to kill this bird. No. Um, I th what happens is I, I, I get laser focused on the one individual I can see. And three easy ones flush up, and and then this one that I'm looking at flies between my legs, and, you know, or goes around a tree before I can get my gun up. So, but yeah, I try and just look out in the lane where I hope that they will go as I walk walk past the dog on point or walk towards the dog on point. I try not to to look for them on the ground, even though you can't can't avoid it. But yeah, it almost hurts when you see them. Like, oh, oh, I see one. <laughs> <laughs> and and the lightest shotgun you own is what you yeah carry, definitely right man twenty An open choke twenty eight gauge um, yeah skeet choke uh, it, you know if you got a six pound shotgun bring that one to Arizona yeah right yeah yeah because you're going to be carrying it all day long and you need to be quick you need to have it up to your shoulder in a hurry Kirby this has been. I want to go to Arizona for the weekend. I, this has been really, really fun. I, I can't thank you enough for spending so much time. Um, if folks want to learn more about Chase and Mearns in Arizona, how, how could they, um, what, what's the website to go look, um, look for more information? Um, we have a Garrett, uh, Arizona game and fish department website, and I'm not sure if they, uh, what we have, I'm sure if they poke around on it, they can find some tips on, on where to find, or at least some, some uh, uh, predictions of, of bird numbers. But if you want to, if you have specific questions about where to go this year, or, or if you want to, uh, or if you want to pursue other species, you can you can uh, email me at kbristow at azgfd.gov. Outstanding. And um, and like I said, yeah, the website is is just uh, azgfd.com, and uh, and there's other information on on other species to hunt in Arizona as well as as the regulations and everything available there. Well, again, thank you so much for for spending so much time and uh, get me fired up for, um, for for my next adventure to Arizona. Yeah, I wish you yeah, I like all the success this weekend too. Yeah, I'm excited. <laughs> uh, what, what, I can't you can't stop me from talking about <laughs> what's your uh what's your short hair's name? Maggie and Petey. Do you do you hunt up and Shorty? Oh you three. three. <laughs> do you yeah do you yeah Shorty's my old dog. I, I've he's thirteen now, so I don't hunt him very for very long anyways. Do you hunt them together or separately when you're hunting Merns? I'll usually I'll usually hunt uh, two. I don't like to hunt more than two at a time, yeah. but I'll often hunt two and uh, and I use uh, with. Well, that's another thing we're kind of going long here. That's but, okay. Um, 
a lot of guys use the the GPS collars because mm -hmm. in Mercerville country you lose track of your dog in a hurry. There, it's it's you know it's thick and uh, and there's lots of ridges and stuff a dog could get over in the next canyon. So a lot of guys use GPS collars or beeper collars to keep track of your dogs and uh, and I've had dogs on point for ten minutes before I got there and the covey was there. You know, so sometimes wow. the covey will kind of walk away from them if they if the dog holds point that sometimes the covey will be up the canyon a ways by the time you get to them but but if you can release the dog and have it work slow it'll work slow up and, and lock up again and then then you can get the covey rise but uh, but yeah that's one of the pieces of gear i didn't mention earlier well, what, about what about that. um should you be concerned about snakes when you're hunting um not by the time Mern's quail season opens, they're pretty much all underground. And there's only a couple, there's a couple of species that, that live in Mern's quail country, but um, I really have not seen them during the hunting season. I've seen them, you know, I pretty much don't see them after October, really, in Mern's quail country anyways. Uh, I remember seeing, I believe they're pecorinos. Is that accurate? What? Javelina. Oh yeah, javelina. Yeah, right. They like a wild, yeah. a wild pig. Are those, are those something that uh, you should be worried about with your with your bird dogs? Um, they can they can tear up a bird dog, but uh, they usually uh, escape. But I've I've had a couple of dogs that have been bit by javelina, and it's it can be bad, but um, but generally the javelina move out, and the dogs you know you can call your dog off of them. Okay. Uh, and uh, but it's it's pretty rare that you have an encounter, or if you do, like I say, it's it's uh, the javelina are running hundred yards out in front of your dog. Right. Well, th thank you so much. This is uh, this has been very fun. Yeah. Uh, all right, folks. Um, if you're listening and you're uh, fired up, uh, a couple couple stats for you. Uh, Quail Forever only has a handful of chapters. In Mern's, in Mern's country, in New Mexico, and in Arizona. We're certainly looking to start chapters of Quail Forever across Mern's country because they're, they're just a fascinating bird that has um, a lot of uh, opportunity to do habitat work and create more access um, across the range. So we invite you to join the organization, get involved, go to quailforever.org. And if you're interested in starting a chapter or joining one of the chapters that we have in Arizona and New Mexico, got some great people volunteering. Uh, we'll get you connected with them as well. Uh, and you can drop drop me an email at bobs at quailforever.org and I'll get you linked up with those chapters. But irregardless, if you aren't yet a member, please go to quailforever.org and become a member. All right. Thank you for listening to this episode of On the Wing podcast. I really enjoyed my conversation with Kirby. Uh, for Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, I'm Bob St. Pierre saying, always follow the dog. Something good will ride. Thanks for listening. Don't forget. Don't give up.